Welcome to the HT Cambridge podcast. For more information, see our website, htcambridge.org.uk. This morning, our reading is taken from John chapter 15, from verses 18 to John 16, verse 33. That's found on page 1083 in our church Bibles. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of a world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you. No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father as well. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my father. But this is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. When the counselor comes, whom I will send to you from the father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the father, he will testify about me, and you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. All this I have told you, so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of a synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this, so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you. I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you, guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, what does he mean by saying, in a little while you will see me no more, then after a little while you will see me, and 
because I'm going to the Father. They kept asking, what does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said, in a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets their anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have, asked, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language but will tell you plainly about my father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying I will ask the father on your behalf. No, the father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the father and entered the world. Now I'm leaving the world and going back to the father. Then Jesus' disciples said, now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered, but a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Thank you, Tolly. Good morning. Nice to see you. I was just thinking as uh, Tolly was reading that reading, that last Sunday evening I preached for 40 minutes on one word. Can you imagine how long this sermon's going to be? <laughs> So let's pray, let's pray. <laughs> Father God, we thank you for your word before us. Thank you, Jesus, for speaking truth. We would ask you to send your Holy Spirit to give us understanding, to open our eyes to the scriptures and to open our hearts and minds. We pray, Lord, you would take what I've prepared and make it useful for each of us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. So in recent weeks, what we've been doing in these morning services is taking very deliberately big chunks of John's gospel so that we could get a view of the landscape, as it were, a panoramic lens on our camera. It's good to do that from time to time. And as you'll have picked up from that reading of the whole of John 16 and part of John 15, it's rather an uncomfortable conversation that we're listening in on. As it always is, I think, if you have a conversation with someone who knows that they're about to die. 
or in the process of dying. It's incredibly awkward to be in their company. And I think it must be very awkward to be that person. And if you've ever been in that spot, you know what I'm talking about. And it must have been very uncomfortable for the disciples at this time because Jesus, instead of talking to them about all he's about to face and the torture of a cross, etc., etc., talks to them about what they're about to face. And I'm sure you've picked up as the passage was read to us. It's a mixed message. And I think all of us will struggle as we dive into what Jesus actually said to balance rather contradictory things that he promises his followers. And we'll be tempted to airbrush one or the other out. The two things that he promises us is peace and trouble at the same time. As I spent quite some time thinking how best to uh, divide this passage up into meaningful chunks, I've alighted on just one verse at the very end of chapter 16 as a summary of all that Jesus was saying. And perhaps, yes, here we are. John 16, verse 33. I've told you these things, says Jesus, so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And I think an accurate way to look at this whole reading is that it's a prophecy. Jesus is standing before the disciples and saying, this is the roadmap that lies ahead of you. And like many biblical prophecies, it doesn't just apply to the people who were there to hear it at the time. It applies in measure to all of us who follow Jesus Christ ever since. And you might step back and say, well, was he right? Did the disciples face trouble? And history would bear him out. Not a single one of them died of old age. Every single one of them was put to death on account of their faith. You might think of the history of the church. Was the history of the church that it just grew without any opposition? And they all lived happily ever after? Is that the history of Jesus' followers? No. One of the famous uh, quotes of Tertullian is, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. In the third century, Bishop Cyprian wrote to one of his friends, Donatus, like this. This seems a cheerful world, Donatus, but when I view it from this, sorry, this seems a cheerful world, Donatus, when I view it from this fair garden under the shadow of these vines. But if I climbed some great mountain and looked out over the wide lands, you know very well what I would see. Brigands on the high road, pirates on the seas, in the amphitheaters, people murdered to please the applauding crowds, under all roofs, misery and selfishness. It really is a bad world, Donatus, an incredibly bad world. Yet in the midst of it, I have found a quiet and holy people. And they've discovered a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasures of this sinful life. They're despised and persecuted, but they care not. They've overcome the world. These people, Donatus, are the Christians, and I am one of them. 
And that little testimonial really does draw together wonderfully well exactly what Jesus is talking about in this passage. And so we're going to look at it together under three headings, uh, which are taken from this verse, John 16, 33. And the first one of which is this. In this world, you will have trouble. In this world, you will have trouble. Now, while it's obviously true that the disciples were standing there knowing Jesus' death was imminent, and so the trouble and persecution is going to be ratcheted up, it's also true that from the moment Jesus broke onto the scene, he's never hidden from the disciples that following him would attract trouble. Right at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, tucked in with the promise of blessing is the promise of trouble. Matthew 5, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. And if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Right at the outset of his public ministry, he says to his would-be followers and his actual followers, to follow me is to be different. That's what makes you salty and tasty in a world devoid of good taste, as it were. And to be different and to follow me will attract opposition. So it's not just a new idea that comes into Jesus' head near the end of his life. And if we read the letters of Paul, of Peter, the letter to the Hebrews, Revelation, the letter of James, you really have to cut out an awful lot if you're not going to see the suffering which the followers of Christ were enduring and those letters are written at least in part to address. But it's certainly true, isn't it, that at this stage of Jesus' life, he is prepping the disciples with an intensity and a focus that might have been lacking before because they're going to be alone. And so in this passage, we can't avoid it. If you turn to uh, the reading in John 15 from verse 18, page 1083, and the heading that's given is the world hates the disciples. And it's just worth making sure we're on the same page here that the word world here is not talking about geographically the whole world it has a particular meaning meaning the world being those people who don't live to please God and that is the majority of people it's a technical sense that uh, this word is being used and Jesus says the world will hate you verse 19 and what I think everyone does at this point and some of the commentators try to do is just rationalize this just try and explain why that might be so William Barclay in his commentary says, you know, no one likes people who are different. And he has a rather quaint, um, peculiar example, which is quite appealing in a way because it is so quaint. He says, the man who invented the umbrella, the first time that he used it and went around town, people shunned him and disliked him because he was different. He had an umbrella in his hand. And then he says, Barclay says also, quite a different point, no one likes people who are morally better than they are. We get tired of them. And he says, you know, this could all contribute to it. 
But I have to say I disagree with Mr. Barclay. I think that Jesus is saying something a lot different from that. You could be a Christian and throw away your umbrella and they'd still hate you. And G Jesus is very, very specific. Look at verse 19. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you don't. You don't belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of a world, and that is why the world hates you. We don't set out to aggravate unbelievers, far from it. But the wider the gap is between the way unbelievers do life and the way Christ followers do life, the more obvious and immediate the opposition will be. Is that not so? And in the time of the birth of the church, in the time of Christ, there were some very glaring differences between the way that Jesus' followers and the others did life. And there were places where the shoe pinched, as it were. The most obvious one was the requirement that the Romans laid down that people should say Jesus is Lord. And the strange thing was, after you'd made that public declaration, you could go off and live life pretty much as you liked. They didn't object to you being a follower of Christ as well or a Jewish follower as well. But the Christians found it an impossible thing to say because they knew that the only Lord was not Caesar but Jesus, and that was a pinch point. And for us, there will be pinch points. What kind of trouble lay ahead for the disciples? Well, in verse 21 of chapter 15, they'll treat you this way because of my name. It's just told them as straight as that. And the horrible fact that Jesus is saying to them is it's this opposition that's going to face you is horribly hefty. It's not going to be marginal to your life. It's not going to be something that you can just pretend isn't happening. He, the vocabulary he uses uh, tells us that in verse 20 of chapter 15, you'll be persecuted. In verse 23, people will hate you. We have a phrase today, don't we? Hate crimes. We know what flows out of hatred. In chapter 16, verse 2, they'll put you out of a synagogue, which is the equivalent of ostracizing you, of, of sending you into a wilderness, really, socially. And then... Even more harrowing, chapter 16, verse 3, they'll kill you. And in their minds, says Jesus, they'll be killing you with God on their side. A time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. And I don't really want to spend too long uh, digressing on this, but I think it is important for us to realize that persecution is alive and kicking today in an incredibly obvious sort of a way. But maybe, like me, you flinch away from really wanting to see it. So last week, when I heard a pastor speak, a man called Pastor Edward, who was in this country for a short time because he's chosen to continue to shepherd his flock in Syria, and he was talking about persecution, it, it was too real to dismiss we might just see a, a, another slide. If you want to come up to speed with what is going on, there are some websites that I would recommend. Uh, Open Doors is an organization that specifically ministers to the persecuted church. And it's a resource on the web for people living in this country to actually leading us to know how to pray, how to support in a meaningful way.
And the next slide. I don't know um, how clearly you can see that, but it's a picture from the Middle East. And on the altar table is a smashed up uh, part of what would have been originally one imagined, uh, a figure of Christ. And it's Time magazine, they're saying, is this the end of Christianity in the Middle East? In other words, I think it's now overwhelming, really, the persecution, so much so that we just choose to look the other way. But one more slide. This is from our English newspapers. It's just an example uh, of a, an MP who was sacked, uh, sorry, a, a JP who was sacked, uh, because he, he just stated that he thought, in his view, that it was detrimental for a child to be put with a same-sex couple rather than people of the opposite sex. And he said this is a natural way it's been through generations and it's a Christian way it's been through generations. And for that, he was asked and commanded, really, to step down. Well, we move on from there. But all, all I'm doing in raising this is just something you're all aware of, I'm sure, that to follow Christ at a time when the world goes in one direction and our laws go in one direction, which is separating itself overtly and intentionally from the Christian way, do you not think it could be that all this teaching about trouble is incredibly relevant for those who are trying to follow Christ? And of course, we're not trying to be obnoxious. We would try and be... Uh, as conciliatory as possible, but we have to be aware, as a friend put it to me, Rupert, the church has leant over so far towards the world, she's in danger of falling in. And this is the tension of our times. And also, as I, just, just as I um, come to end this first point with promised trouble, sometimes I categorize it in my mind, I wonder if you do this, that the people in big-time trouble, facing big-time opposition, are like those Christians in Syria, are like the people in Iraq. And I kind of think, we don't face anything like that. And whenever I start to think like that, I remember a conversation over my kitchen table in Salisbury at the end of a Sunday evening where we had heard a man called Pastor Paul Negroot address us as a congregation. And he told us stories of living as an out-and-out -out Christian in Romania when Ceausescu was the dictator in charge. And they were harrowing stories. And they, they were stories of unbelievable brutality, how he was told that if he continued to preach Christ and to lead a church, his family would be attacked, they would be in physical danger, and it was so. His wife was raped on the way home, his daughter was mugged, he was incarcerated in prison. And he told us a lot about this, during his sermon and a lot about how God was faithful and how he knew the peace of God. And as we were eating our scrambled eggs and bacon in the vicarage after, uh, Liz and I were rather in awe of this man, as you could imagine, you would be. And he said this extraordinary thing just while he was munching on, on his supper. He just said it like a casual throwaway line. But he said, but you know, Rupert, um, those were the easy days. He said, in those days, you only had one decision to make. And that decision was, would you die for Christ or not? And he said, those were the easy days. He said, today, it's much more difficult, much more challenging. 
He says, now we have to make a thousand choices in a day. And the choices are, will you compromise Christ today? And for a fraction of a second, I saw that we in this country are just not immune from danger, just because someone isn't pointing a gun to your head. Well, so much for the alertness to trouble. I want to raise at this point some reassurance. Why does Jesus teach like this? And let me just highlight uh, some of the reasons he says why he's teaching like this. Number one, from uh, John 16, verse 1, to prevent the disciples being misled or falling away after his death. All this I've told you, says Jesus, so that you won't go astray. To be forewarned is forearmed, in other words. Number two, to reassure us in chapter 16, verse 4, I've told you this so that when the time comes, you'll remember that I warned you. Maybe they don't do this in Cambridge, but when I went to Exeter University, our rather canny and wise professor and the faculty that I worked, sort of worked, uh, got all the pupils together, all the freshers together, and he sat us down on the very first day, and he said, let me tell you what's going to happen. In about eight weeks' time, you will be walking up the steep hill of a university campus to a lecture. It'll be dark, you'll be wet, you'll be miserable, and you'll be saying to each other, why did I choose to come here, and why did I ever want to read this subject? And you'll be about to hand in your resignation. When that time comes, let it be remembered, I told you so. <laughs> and it was a strange comfort some eight weeks later as I was walking up the hill. And Jesus is saying the same here, I've told you this, so when the time comes, you'll remember I warned you. And thirdly, verse 33, to enable us to enjoy peace. I've told you this, so that in me you might have peace. So we move to the second part, which is, but take heart. And in the time Jesus was teaching, the heart wasn't really the place of emotions. It was a place where you did your thinking. And what he's really saying is, but think about this. And in this section, I'm going to give us a number of nuggets that we should put into our resources so that when times of persecution come, we can bring them to mind and they'll bring hope. In Lamentations chapter 3 in the Old Testament, the writer says, this I bring to mind and therefore I have hope. And it's the same here. Jesus is saying, put this in your mind and then in the future you'll have hope. And I'm going to go through them very, very quickly. Chapter 15, verse 18, if a persecuted you, remember they persecuted me. In other words, he's saying, like master, like servant. This is not an aberration. You're following in the footsteps of a master. And the aroma of Christ will be there. It's Christ-like. Number two, secondly, remember Jesus warned us it was coming, and I've covered that already. Number three, completely different point. Call upon the counselor for help. Verse seven. Now the counselor is also called the Holy Spirit or the spirit of truth. And he's known as our advocate or our barrister. And when we were preparing, uh, just reading through as a staff team, our former barrister here, John Irvin, reminded us he particularly liked this description of the Holy Spirit as an advocate, because you could be a defending barrister or a prosecuting barrister. And sometimes the Holy Spirit will be one or the other. But remarkably, in the middle of this cauldron of suffering, 
Jesus says to the disciples, here's what the Holy Spirit will do. And there are three glorious things that the Spirit will do in the middle of suffering, which seem, you'd never have guessed it, really. The first thing that he, he will do is he will convict the world. He will convict or convince the world in regard to sin. Now, if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, you will know very well that probably looking back, you can remember a time when you never cared, frankly, not in the least bit, what God thought of your life. And you probably looked at your own life, if you ever did, and many of us don't, but if you ever did, and thought, well, it's perfectly honky-dory, really. I'm no worse than the next guy, and no better than the next guy. I'm sure it'll all work out fine in the end. But something has to happen in your life and in my life, and it has actually to be the Holy Spirit, to convict us, convince us, show us that, hey, life isn't quite so bright and bushy-tailed as it might be because I've left God out. And it's often in a time of suffering that God will bring this about. Long before I became a Christian, I remember hearing a speaker called Richard Vermbrandt talking, and he was a Romanian pastor as well. But he told this story. Now, I was about 15 years old when I heard this story, but I never forgot it. And I'm sure in the kind of, in the trace towards how Rupert becomes a Christian, it's there in the memory bank. And the story was simply this. He said that there was a church in Romania where a small number of believers had come together to worship. They weren't meant to be worshiping. The, the church at that point had been shut down. It must have been in, in the 1960s. And he said, in through the door came members of the army and the police. And they were extraordinarily menacing, and they had the machine guns with them, and they took off the wall this wonderful picture of Christ, of Christ's face. And they put it at the central part of, of the church, and they told everybody in the congregation, you are to get up, and you're to come to the front and you're to spit on that picture. And they stood at the front menacingly with their truncheons and their guns. And Vernbrandt said that the majority of all the congregation did this, except for a young girl who knelt down, wiped all the spit off the picture and said, I love him. Now, I don't know what happened to that girl. But even just hearing that story, age 15, it pressed something in me. I began in a funny sort of way, odd sort of way. The Holy Spirit was beginning to convict me of sin. Jesus says in the middle of persecution, this is what will happen. Secondly, he says, the Holy Spirit will convince the world in respect to righteousness. What does that mean? It means, you know, the world, those who don't love God, mosey on through life most of the time thinking, I'm sure it'll all be okay in the end. Nothing to worry about. That's what righteousness is. It's a description about you can stand right with God. But Jesus says in the middle of trouble and persecution, you will find the Holy Spirit will actually start to convict people and they will realize all is not well. All is not well. I won't stand right with God unless something changes. When I was working in a former parish, there was a, 
a couple in the congregation. She was a lawyer and he was a test pilot. He actually test flew the Eurofighter. She was a, a Christian and he was not. And I remember they came to church one day as a couple and he was incredibly shaken. And in the course of time, uh, I got to hear his story and his story was that in the middle of the night he had a vision stroke dream. He said, I don't know whether to call it a vision or a dream. He said, it was like having a dream, but I was awake. And he said, the dream was this, that I had died and I was with a huge number of people. And I don't know whether you want to call it heaven or what you want to call it, but I was before the throne of God. And there were thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And they seemed to be having a great time. But the light, the searchlight seemed to be on me. And all I wanted to do was hide. And he said, I was absolutely terrified. He said, I woke up, I was shaking. I told my wife all about this. I went downstairs, I made a cup, cup of whatever it was, chocolate, coffee. And he said, I still was utterly disturbed. I could not find peace. And he was being convicted by the Holy Spirit, shown that he had nothing, no right standing with God at all. In the course of time, he became a follower of Christ. Jesus is saying this is what the Holy Spirit will do. And thirdly, in regard to judgment, the Holy Spirit will make people aware that one day they will stand before the judgment seat of God and they'll start to worry about it and care about it. And if you go online and you track down any stories about the Hebridean revival, you will find out that one of the things that happened there was people going about their daily lives and suddenly the fear of God would fall on them. And they cared about eternal salvation and standing before the judgment seat of God. Now that isn't kind of normal in our everyday life, but it's normal when the Holy Spirit gets to work. And Jesus says, in times of persecution, you will see the Holy Spirit doing this. And actually, if you go online, you will read about stories of people turning to Christ for all these reasons in all the lands where persecution is happening. Well, very quickly, a couple of other things. The Holy Spirit will reveal more of God's truth when we're able to hear it in chapter 16, verse 12. I'm just whipping through these as time is very short now. Then says Jesus, remember, grief is for a short time, joy is for a long time. And he uses the incredibly appropriate picture of childbirth, saying, you know, the pain that of childbirth is forgotten in the light of the glory of what follows in the child telling us that the pain of persecution will be forgotten in the light of the glory of the gift of God's company forever. And that is a Christian way of thinking. That is something that we need to practice to rejoice and celebrate the future gifts that God has for us as if we had them now. That's exactly what Jesus did. And then to realize also that the realization that God's purposes are fulfilled through the most inexplicable and unlikely events. I can't explain to you the suffering in the Middle East. I can't explain to you the suffering of the cross. But I can explain to you that I know that the Father is able to use these things for his glory. And Jesus says that in verse 28. I came from the Father, entered the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going back to the Father. This is not off the chart away from God's plan. Somehow, somehow, it's part of God's plan. Well, I'll move to the last part of 
of the passage, I've overcome the world. This is the ultimate, the ultimate comfort to us. The ultimate comfort to us is that the one that we follow has been raised from the dead. And because there's an empty grave and an empty tomb and a living Christ, we rejoice in what we will receive, the inheritance that will be ours. Come on Good Friday, come on Easter Day, but celebrate every day. And there's no more appropriate way for me to end this sermon, really, than to uh, share with you a very quaint quote from Charles Simeon. Charles Simeon was asked in April 1831, when he was 71 years old, and he'd been pastor of this church in Cambridge for 49 years, and he was asked one afternoon by his great friend, Joseph Gurney, how it was that he'd managed to get through all the persecution and suffering that had come his way. And he was seriously persecuted when he took over this church. And in his old age, this is what he said. My dear friend, we mustn't mind a little suffering for Christ's sake. And then because he loved horse riding and hunting, he uses this rather strange image when I'm getting through a hedge, I don't think many of us can identify with that really. When I'm getting through a hedge, if my head and shoulders are safely through, I can bear the prickings of my legs. Let us rejoice in the remembrance that our holy head has surmounted all his suffering and triumphed over death. Let us follow him patiently. We shall soon be partakers of his victory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we have to thank you that you didn't hide from your disciples, that you were about to suffer and so were they. And so we want to ask, Lord, that you would equip us and your whole worldwide church to experience your peace and your company when persecuted. We pray for any known to us who quietly and patiently are enduring suffering even in this city on account of their allegiance to you. And we lift before you the people in troubled parts of the world where their faith has led them to be persecuted and to suffer and to be made homeless and grieving. And we pray that all the resources you talk about in this passage and more would be given to them. Send your Holy Spirit. But not just your Holy Spirit, stir up your church to come to the help of your family all around the world. And we pray for ourselves that you would fill us with the confidence that you have overcome. That you are the ultimate victor and you have won the victory over the grave. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.